Hello and welcome to the Event Safety Podcast. I'm Danielle Hernandez. I'm Steve Adelman. And Steve, I love books. I was one of those kids at school that got in trouble for reading. Sadly, my children now get in trouble for reading at school too. And today we're going to talk about books, not fiction books, not... We're going to talk about books for our industry. See, what are you reading now? Um, I am reading Influence by Robert Cialdini, C-I-A-L-D-I-N-I. Influence is a book that's been around for quite a while. Um, It's theoretically a psychology book. Um, And as Danielle and I were just talking about, I actually read a lot of social psychology. What I recently realized is called behavioral economics. And Bob Cialdini- yeah, I started that book a while. I haven't, I haven't gotten back to it. Um, but it's yeah, good to a- write in the margins of influence by Bob Cialdini. I, I do that <laughs> a lot too. My my library, which is a super nerd library, is filled with books with tiny scrawl in the margins. I talk to myself when I read. Oh, I I love that. Uh, right now, I'm reading the Hour Between Dog and Wolf: How Risk Taking Transforms Us, Body and Mind by John Coates, C-O-A-T-E-S. Um, it's, it's about, well, it's the, the framework is people on the stock market and how their decision-making changes based on the stress of their situation. I was like, well, that relates um, to, to my life. But we're not talking about necessarily what we're reading right now. We're, we're trying to pick out the books that have made the biggest difference. And we actually sent out notes on social media. So sometimes I'm going to be talking about what some of our friends in the great wide world, it may be you sent in as some of the books that changed your life. So we started to try to make this like a true top 10 list and we just started going down rabbit holes. So if if math is your thing, it may be more than 10. Don't worry. Deal with it. Deal with it. We're just, we're talking about books that we love or books that have influenced us. We're gonna let the math people worry about the math. So Steve, what, what you got? So as a preface, because I'm a lawyer, I have to give a preface, um, (laughs) it it occurs to me, we're going to geek out about books, things that come between hard covers or occasionally soft covers. And that suggests a a prejudice because, well, Danielle and I are book nerds. Danielle actually still uses paper and pen. Um, I have to forage for one. I have some fancy pens. So maybe what the follow-up is, and we were talking about this offline also, maybe the follow-up after we talk about books is to talk about electronic media that we find really influential or important. Because mm-hmm. um, I, I don't want to you know, prejudice books, you know, old-fashioned information format um, relative to more newfangled information formats. This is just one way to get great new knowledge. It is not the only way. So, you know, sidle up to our respective libraries, but know (laughs) that there will be more of this. Um, You know, I personally nerd out about podcasts and I have a lot of them that I listen to. Um, And I also read some websites pretty extensively. So maybe, maybe that's the coda to this conversation. Um, so there, I think I've just surprised Danielle, but whatever. <laughs> hey, I'll add it to the list. <laughs> there, there, there you go. So coming attractions. Anyway. So so, so I'll, I'll start. I'm going to mention a book that a, a famous lawyer I know contributed to. It's <laughs> Safety and Health for the Stage, Collaboration with the Production Process, 
by William J. Reynolds. So, and we're both, you can't tell guys, because it's a podcast, but we're both holding our books up to the screen. Yay! In hand. And caveat, we're not going to give super lot of shout outs to our own book, The Event Safety Guide, but hey, we su- super love that book. So, And yeah. we'll give a shout out to it anyway. Yeah. It's gonna get, get it. It's free. It's free. Um, so Steve, what do you like so much about this book that you even contributed to it? Um, it's industry specific. It talks about collaboration. Um, you know, one of the things that the Event Safety Alliance was born thinking about was culture change. Um, mm-hmm. That was one of Jim Digby's big ideas when the Event Safety Alliance was nothing but an idea back in late 2011. And culture change seems like a really important place to start. And huge. A, a huge issue. So right in the subtitle of safety and health for the stage, it says collaboration with the production process. I love collaboration. You know, I, I refer to my smart friends all the time. And I am blessed with a lot of smart friends, but also it's a line that suggests that none of us accomplishes as much individually as we can accomplish when we work collaboratively with others. Absolutely, and and nothing says live event production more than that that collaboration. Um, different companies, different expertises, different perspectives. One of the things I really love about this book is. It, it gets into specifics. It has on on the page that I opened up to, it it has a risk assessment matrix, something that we talk about a lot, but can be kind of confusing if somebody's like, do a risk assessment matrix, and you're like, how? Well, there's an example. There's a risk assessment form in here that you could use as an example. Stuff like that is really, really, really useful, especially if you've heard about it but never really seen it, or you heard about it and you couldn't absorb all the details and this book is really great for that. Yeah, practical treatises should not be overlooked um, because even as they age, and, and I have a practical treatise on my list as well, even as they age, they still stir your thought process. They make you think about what you need under your own circumstances, which is great. You know, think about the way self-help books work. If you ever read any self-help, rarely do they teach you anything that you didn't already know. That's not the purpose of self-help. But sometimes they explain something to you in a way you're like, light bulb. Right. That, I could do that, or I could try that. And yeah, that's amazing. Uh, So in terms of structure of this pod, it's a little loosey-goosey. There are two other books that come to mind that are almost in the very same vein. Would it make sense for me to mention them now? Yeah, do it. All right. So, um, and this is one that came in, one that I have on my bookshelf, but also came in through some of our uh, listener suggestions. Um, The Health and Safety Guide for Film, TV, and Theater by uh, industry legend Monana Rosal, R-O-S-S-O-L. This is is a standard book. It's on most people's uh, bookcases if you're in those industries as, as a safety manual. Um, and she gets into a lot of specifics. Um, and another industry legend, um, this other one that I have, it's, it's purple and has a iris on the front of it, um, is the Practical Health and Safety Guidelines for School Theater Operations. 
And this is by Dr. Doom, who just recently passed away. Um, and this is geared towards schools, but you know what? It works for just about everybody else as well and, and has some, some real good information in it. So shout out to both of those. Uh, great addition to your bookshelf if they are not already on them. All right, so just because you, you have stirred my interest in kind of the classics, let's stay in that mode. And then Daniela, I'm gonna tee up that we both have a favorite um, which we can both, you know, totally nerd out on. But um, I'm going to talk about the special event risk manage. Oh my God, Danielle has the same book, <laughs> the special event risk management manual by Alexander Berlonghi, um, B-E-R-L-O-N-G-H-I. Um, I use this a lot, um, and the cool thing about it, from my perspective, is. The first edition was published in 1990. I have a revised 1994 edition, and I'm not aware that there is a more recent one than that. And it kind of underscores that just because something is not you know, within the last five or 10 years doesn't mean in any respect that it's out of date. So Alexander Berlonghi is a smart guy, and this special event risk management manual raises a lot of the issues that are still highly relevant, mm -hmm. even if I would not say use the same font that he did in his book, <laughs> even if I wouldn't organize it the same way, even if you know my writing style is more narrative heavy than the way he wrote it, I refer to this book constantly because it is, well, it has passed the test of time. And it's still right. And I know that every time I go on a job site, I see evidence that Alexander Berlonghi, things that he wrote in you know, the late 1980s are still good and true. So you and, know, as and Danielle and I both hold up our bright yellow copies. <laughs> it's a bright yellow book, guys. <laughs> easy to find in your bookcase and you should have it there. Yeah, and while it says risk management, it is mostly talking about front of house house management, ushers, um, wayfinding, transportation, security, security, that aspect of putting on a live event. So it's not talking as much about things like rigging or uh, slip trips and falls backstage, that kind of stuff. What's next? All right. What I'm doing here, podcast listeners, so I'm, I'm facing the opposite way than I usually do in my office because I'm actually facing my bookcase. And so each time we, we tee up a new book, I'm literally pulling it out of my bookcase and Danielle's <laughs> doing the same thing, which is kind of fun to see if we pull the same one down. So the next book on my list is one that I teach my law students at the beginning of every semester. It is Amanda Ripley's The Unthinkable. And this is also not brand new. Um, the Unthinkable, I'm looking for the date. Um, the Unthinkable is copyrighted 2008. My copy is 2009 in paperback. Um, so there are many things that I like about The Unthinkable and, and why I use it as the first book that I use for my law students. One, law students read a lot of really heavy, terrible, turgid prose. Lawyers are not known to be good writers and in my experience, most of them are terrible writers. So I try to dazzle them with my coolness by giving them something that's fun to read. 
And so Ripley it's about is, the unthinkable about. So yes, enough process. The unthinkable. The subtitle, subtitles are really useful, I think. They really um, are. The, the subtitle of The Unthinkable by Amanda Ripley is Who Survives When Disaster Strikes and Why? And Definitely so what she relevant. talks about <laughs> is that each person has what she characterizes as a disaster personality. And our disaster personality determines whether we, when there's some kind of catastrophe in our world, whether we recognize the disaster for what it is and then respond decisively or whether we don't recognize the disaster but at least we can follow direction so we're not totally paralyzed or we are the very small number of people who are vastly overrepresented on television and in movies the ones running around with their you know hair metaphorically on fire panicking and, and the framework for her storytelling is she, she spends a bunch of time talking about 9-11, correct? Well, she leads with 9-11 because the NIST research, NIST is the National Institute of something and something, S-T, N-I-S-T, I forget. Um, we'll, we'll fact check this and put it in the show notes later. Um, NIST had recently come out with um, hundreds of interviews from 9-11 uh, survivors. And Amanda Ripley actually begins with a story, um, which I tell my law students. <clears throat> so I, I know the story and I can tell it to you right now. It's the story of a lady named Elia Zedeno. Elia Zedeno was an office worker in one of the World Trade Towers. And Amanda Ripley is describing what happened when the plane hit Ilya Zedeno's tower. And in a nutshell, Ilya Zedeno sort of milled around and did not much of anything. She picked up a, a mystery novel on her desk. Um, she you know, shut her computer down. She checked for voicemail messages on her phone. She, it, it's called milling. She literally just milled around her desk not doing anything constructive until finally something broke her out of her lethargy, someone screaming at her. Um, and then she finally went towards the stairwell and responded. So she was a follower and that was really typical. The point of the Elia Zedeno story is twofold. One, her behavior was most common. Um, in disasters, there is a bell-shaped curve um, yep, which is known this. as the 1080-10 theory. 1080-10 rule is how I learned it. Um, it's not a rule, it's just a theory. It's just a bell-shaped curve and it describes how people respond in disasters. 10% 10 pe 10 of people respond decisively. The fat part of the curve, including Ilya Zedeno, mill around, they can follow direction, but they won't lead. And then 10%, the remaining 10%, um, they're Are the ones incapable. who- Yeah, incapable and basically from a crowd management standpoint, it's hard to say, you can't worry about them. You have to focus on saving the 90%. Yeah, um, if and, you have abundant time at the end of your rescue, you can go back and, and try to get them then. But most of the time they're, for whatever reason, relatively unmovable. Right, so point one of two with the Elia Zedeno from the World Trade Center story is 
her behavior was very common. It was the fat part of the bell-shaped curve, which we are about to see in every other story that Amanda Ripley tells throughout this very entertainingly written book. The other part of Elia Zedeno's significance and why her story is, it's not first, it's second in the book, is she should have known better because she was in the first World Trade Center bombing, the one where there was a truck bomb under the garage, in the garage underneath the building back in the 1990s. So she reasonably should have known what a bomb in the World Trade Center sounds like, feels like, and what to do because she had actually lived through it once before and it didn't make any difference. She still milled around until somebody else basically screamed at her, let's go. Yep. That is a great book. I couldn't find it on my bookshelf. I must have taken it home or lent it to someone, which is what happens with my books is that I either, I move them or I give them to somebody. I said, you need to read this. And the unthink the unsinkable was definitely unsinkable. You're going to have to uh, un edit that Unthinkable. Out. Yeah. You're going to have to edit that out, Jacob. The unthinkable. I said it right the first time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And my was, copy of the unthinkable has you know, it has tabs. little plastic tabs. I've got notes in the margins. Yep. And it's just fabulous. It's, it's, it's also, a great book. It, it's a great book. It's really easy to read. She was a writer for Newsweek magazine, so she's a popular writer. Um, we actually tried to get her as a keynote speaker for the Event Safety Summit, but she's not talking about this stuff anymore. Uh, so to follow up, NIST, National Institute of Standards and Technology. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, so my next book is the third edition of the Stage Rigging Handbook by Jay Glarum. Jay Glarum has passed, but uh, he and several other rigging grandfathers, I suppose you'd call them, uh, put out some really fabulous information about stage rigging. And this is um, one that, that I have found speaks more to me than some of the other ones. Uh, it's one of those things that you find the one that, that works best for your brain. And when, so there are a couple other ones. Um, there is Rigging Math by Delbert Hall. And uh, uh, Harry Donovan's Entertainment Rigging. Um, and there was a comment from, from our Instagram. Uh, I'm just going to read it. So for this person, it had to be Harry Donovan's Entertainment Rigging. It was the first time I really saw the math laid out and made me realize that I don't know much and how many mistakes I'd made over the co course of my thus far dubious career. I realized I had to really know what I know and be, op be open to knowing how much I don't know. Beyond that, the first time I read that an employer can automatically appeal the fine for a worker's death and how low that fine winds up being, this refers to OSHA guys, uh, made me resolve to never ignore a situation that could make for that potential event and outcome. And, you know, a lot of times, especially with these sort of industry trees on like something like rigging, which is a huge responsibility. Um, knowing what you don't know is as valuable as knowing what you do know. Uh, so that is my next is, is, is rigging. And so the stage rigging, Handbook is primarily about counterweight rigging. Um, there are also books out there that discuss chain motors and, and truss rigging. Um, since I work in a theater, 
I'm not as familiar with them, but here's a little shout out to those books as well. Back to you, Steve. Before, so here's a history lesson within a history lesson. Because <laughs> I, I like to layer things. Um, before I became a lawyer, I was working on a PhD in American history. I was going to be a college history professor. And so I read history, um, which probably distinguishes me from most people. But history as, is amazing. Yeah, um, well-written history. Um, historians, unfortunately, also like lawyers, um, write a lot like of words. turgid prose. So <laughs> there is a fair amount of rather boring history, but- I mean, the I'm lessons going, from history, to be clear. Uh, right, something about those who forget the lessons of history are doomed to repeat it. Um, so <laughs> I, I'm going to offer praise for, I'm gonna cheat here, two books. Um, that are at the intersection of history and live events. Um, this falls into the category of what our friend and ESA board member, Tim Roberts, um, once told me is called disaster porn. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I am going to recommend Triangle, The Fire That Changed America by David Von Driel, D-R-E-H-L-E. -E. Again, these will all be in the show notes. Um, as well as The Circus Fire, The True Story of an American Tragedy by Stuart Onan, O-apostrophe-N-A-N. Um, basically, these are two historical accounts of, of the type of disaster that was very common in the early 20th century in the US, which was building fires. Yeah. Um, that's where the National Fire Protection Association came from. It yes. came from the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. And that's what Triangle is about. And a lot of our building codes and regulations and fire codes and life safety codes all are written because of those experiences. Not, perhaps not at the time, but those experiences informed those decisions like egress doors always opening out and you can't block a staircase and you can't block a door and it doesn't matter if you're worried about people stealing something from your factory, they still have to be able to get out if there's a fire. And, that, um, that, that's exactly right. So if you, know, if you ever think, oh, God damn it, I don't want to check the emergency exits to see if they're locked or blocked, it's because of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire where young women literally were diving out of an eighth story window in a tenement building in New York City in the early 20th century yep. because it was either jump or burn to death. Um, that's where the NFPA life safety code came from. It was initially called the building exits code. Um, and, you know, lest we get smug, you know, people who do outdoor shows in tented structures, that's why I also recommend um, Stuart Onan's The Circus Fire, because this was a circus tent fire in Hartford, Connecticut in the 1940s, and it sounds and looks an awful lot like the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, because even yep. temporary structures have egress problems, which include people not knowing how to get out, lack of wayfinding signage, um, poor illumination sometimes, um, stuff, stuff in the stuff. way. 
just a lot of stuff and all of the same you know, social psychology issues that we were just describing that Amanda Ripley does a magnificent job discussing in The Unthinkable. These two books, Triangle and The Circus Fire, are closer to primary source material. So, you know, with my law students, you know, I'm just giving them a taste of things before we actually get to hard law. Um, but in, in Amanda Ripley's storytelling in The Unthinkable, she touches on the way people behave in a number of disasters. Mm -hmm. What I do with my law students is I say, look, if you get into this and you actually think that you may practice in an area involving human beings, you should do deeper reading. And then I start suggesting things like Triangle and The Circus Fire. So uh, there's another book we can put in that category. And this came recommended from Taylor Hansen. Uh, Tinderbox by Hatch. Um, it's a book about the Iroquois theater fire in 1903. It's very, very similar uh, story in terms of causation and escape and set in a theater. Um, those, those stories, uh, for me, whenever I read them, there are always lessons that I take from them, even if it's just why we do things the way we do them. It helps me understand why um, and, you know, sort of what's important and, and what uh, what is extraneous. Frequently, yeah, and- how we hang the banner is extraneous unless it's on something that's going to catch the wind, in which case it's not extraneous at all, is it? <laughs> and I also, I think it's important to read historical accounts of how actual human beings behave during disasters because Mm -hmm. I I do a fair amount of risk management planning. I write risk management plans. I read other people's risk management plans. What I consistently see embedded in other people's plans is an assumption that people will think things through, that they will behave in a way that makes sense to somebody who is sitting at a computer in the middle of the afternoon on a Tuesday and they're not drunk and they're not running around and they don't have a bunch of other things distracting them. Weren't talking to all their friends when they came in. So they're not, you know, all of those things put live event audiences in a very different or and performers as well in a very different category than office worker in a cubicle when the fire alarm goes off. Yeah. So I think it's a very useful corrective. You Mm -hmm. know, when people think about, you know, this, I'll bust out something that we've talked about in the past, the Swiss cheese model. My Why is it that you want to have multiple ways to mitigate the risk of harm? The reason is because people will screw up in creative ways, some of which you might have foreseen, some of which you won't. And but- probably no one solution is perfect for all situations. So if, if you use multiple pieces of cheese... Hopefully you're, you're serving as many people as is possible. Um, regarding uh, triangle uh, and some other uh, types of, I'm going to tease your idea from before. There's a podcast called Stuff You Missed in History Class, and they've done some really good work on events like this where you can learn some of these same lessons. So, Danielle, I'm going to tease your next one, because I think I I see a segue here. Um, 
I was just talking about writing risk management plans and why it's important to have multiple ways to accomplish the same goal. Um, okay. One means of doing that is to write checklists. <gasps> okay, so, so yes. So one of my, you know, it's like I had three or four books that I really wanted to talk about. And this was really close to the top of my list. And it's a book called The Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande. And I apologize if I mispronounced it. Um, he was a doctor. Uh, and so he would talk about his process. And this is a lot about the development of checklists in uh, primarily medicine, but he also talks a little bit about aviation. Um, it's, a, it's an easy read. It's pretty short. And what this book taught me was the importance of, of a process and a process that, you know, his point was you don't need a checklist with every single thing written down with a little tick box next to it. You need a checklist that reminds you how to not forget something important from top to bottom. Because as you do repetitive things, it is easy to say, it's that thing guys, when you're in the shower and you're like, did I wash my hair already? That thing. You know, if you're really tired, maybe that's just me. Okay, uh, that book changed how I structure work at work, not just for me, but for my staff, um, because I may tell them a bunch of things and they've heard the first one and the seventh one, and they're sort of muddy on what I wanted them to do in the middle, but if I can give them a, a simplified checklist, they can just work through the process. And our errors literally have decreased. And strongly recommend that book. And as I said, it's a pretty easy read. It teaches you a habit to get into yeah. when, you're, when you're creating any kind of plan for other people or even for yourself, which is, this is, betrays my own bias towards simplicity, but the more you can cut out verbiage mm -hmm. and just write what is the action that you want people to do and then give them a way to literally check it off. I did this action. The more likely it is people will do it. Yep. So you if know, you right give them now, three books to read as part of their checklist, they're never going to get anything done because they're going to get lost in the words. Right. Um, literally right now, my biggest project is writing a new um, safety and evacuation plan for um a major cultural institution in one of my favorite cities. And the old plan is a lot of narrative. It's a lot of complete sentences with a fair amount of, you know, sort of pep talk. And, and here's yep. why this is important in the grand history of this and wonderful- you know, All that's valuable, but not in the checklist. Right. <laughs> and really, it's not valuable in that location at all. All right. So The Checklist Manifesto, um, a book that Danielle and I both recommend highly by Atul Gawande. My next one um, is called, this is a shout out to our meteorologist friend, Dr. Kevin Clazel, because I saw this on his bookcase behind him when he was giving a webinar and we were sort of team teaching. Um, this is called Weather in the Courtroom, Memoirs from a Career in Forensic Meteorology by William H. Haggard. Wait, and what? Yes, Danielle is looking quizzically. All right. Weather in the Courtroom. This is a classic. 
Um, in fact, it's such a classic, it may be a chestnut by now. Um, and, and I always write- Maybe in I can the, get it from the library. <laughs> um, yes. Um, so whether in the courtroom, there are a series of cases involving meteorological disasters, basically severe weather hits some event or something like an event, and how meteorological science is used to help unravel a mystery. And they all star, you know, William H. Haggard, but that's fine because as we're recording this, 20 inches of rainfall are, are forecast to fall on Houston, Texas. We are living in climate change. So being reminded of the effect of severe weather in all sorts of interesting exposed environments, yep. probably a good nudge towards, yeah, taking some extra precautions because yeah. you know it's not our our childhood weather patterns any longer. Yeah, that the severe weather of all different kinds in all different parts of of well, I was going to say U.S., but in, actually in the whole world, um, I think definitely are going to have already impacted the events, but also are going to impact our planning for these events because flooding more likely, extreme heat more likely, severe storms, just you name it, it's there. Um, the fires, because that's actually, A, can drive weather, can cause smoke at my house in South Carolina from a fire in California, um, and just affects the weather and is caused uh, is exacerbated by the weather. So that is a great book. I'm going to add that to my list. Yeah, and, um, and part of the reason why I think it's useful to have a weather-related book um, is because we are still talking about COVID, at least in the background of this conversation. And we know that one of the things that significantly mitigates the risk of infection from COVID-19 is the increased air circulation of outdoor events. You know, when mm -hmm. you're outdoors, maybe you don't need to have, you know, a mask requirement, you know, separate conversation, but the viral load is much less when you're outdoors, but all the other risks of holding events outdoors still exist. So your exposure to severe weather, the security challenges, the other crowd related challenges, um, all of that stuff still exists. So even as you solve one problem, the other problems remain. And I think it's important to have a reminder, oh yeah, I can't just move my formerly indoor event outdoors in the name of COVID mis uh, risk mitigation without remembering, huh, yeah, weather remains a challenge and I need to have my severe weather plan in place. Um, and yeah, my severe weather trigger chart, which is basically a checklist. <laughs> it is. I, I, you know, I'm not sure I'd ever thought of it as a checklist before, but cool. Uh, yeah. I do. I do love a good weather trigger chart. Um, sometimes I'll get one out and I'll show it to somebody. I said, look at this thing. It's so great. And they, depending on who they are, they are not as amazed as I am. Um, but then again, that that's me. All right, so you, guys, when we were trying to put this together, we gathered resources from all over the place and Steve sent this list of books. And there was one on here that caught my attention that I have not read, um, but I will say when 
the, my very first expo exposure to the Event Safety Alliance was at a conference session at LDI many years ago. And Jim was one of the people that spoke. And one of the things he talked about was the process changes at NASA after the Challenger disaster. And it sort of, it caught my attention. The story did, because you know, Jim is Jim is a great storyteller and humans learn through stories. So I was like, okay. One of Steve's book is The Challenger Launch Disaster, Risky Technology, Culture, and Deviance at NASA by Diane Vaughn, V-A-U-G-H-A-N. So what's that? I mean, other than the title, tell me about that book because I'm intrigued. Yeah, so I actually wrote it wrong in the notes. It's The Challenger Launch Decision. Um, and yeah, my fault. Um, sorry, Diane Vaughn. Um, <laughs> so The Challenger Launch Decision is not easy reading. Um, it is one of the one and a half exceptions that I referenced earlier. So it's 500 and I'm holding it in my hands right now with the index, it's 500 and you know that starts out badly, uh, 575 pages. This is real sociolo sociological research. Um, so there are tables and there is data and she is an actual social scientist. So, so is it about how they reached the decision to launch and, and the errors that went into that? that? That is precisely what it is. So Diane Vaughn was hired as an outside consultant by NASA as NASA tried to unravel why did Challenger fall out of the sky. And what Diane Vaughn found was not at all what anyone expected. It was a term that she coined the normalization of deviance. The normalization of deviance is in, in the Challenger launch decision book. Um, the normalization of deviance is where we basically get used to certain errors and eventually we decide, oh, well, that didn't cause anything bad. So even though it's wrong, oh. we're okay with that. So um, in the theater, we call that, we've done it that way a hundred times. <laughs> precisely. Somebody doesn't wear their PPE, but nothing ever falls on their head. They're fine. In fact, they're more comfortable. So we'll just let it slide yet again. But the normalization of deviance is basically just a version of Russian roulette. And right. you're because counting... maybe the hundred and first time is when your luck runs out, because that's what you were gambling with the whole time. That's right. So what Diane Vaughn discovered through voluminous research covered over the course of 575 pretty dense pages, um, to be honest, I don't recommend reading most of the book. Get, definitely get it out of the library. The first 100 pages or so are quite interesting, and it covers the main point. The rest is all of her backup documentation. The data. The, it's the data, and it itself is quite interesting, but it's heavy slogging. Um, but the idea that deviance is normalized even in highly professionalized workplaces where they talk and do safety over and over and over again, talk about the Swiss cheese model, that is what NASA does. But so even at NASA, they normalized certain mistakes, said, 
this never does matter, even though we acknowledge that it's wrong. So we're going to let it slide again. So it's human behavior. It, it is it's <laughs> human behavior again. Yeah. Huh. So that's what okay, the cool. challenger launch decision is about. Um, this concept, I think, is really useful mm -hmm. uh, because we do normalize deviance. It's why you should look at the manufacturer's safety, in, you know, safety information, because you want to do things the right way, even if you think it's never going to matter, because it probably will. It, you know, I have this conversation with my, my security provider clients all the time because they know that they're sort of the budgetary stepchild for every event. You know, oh, you know, we need to cut some costs. Let's cut security guards. Nothing bad ever happens. That's an example of the normalization of deviance. If you cut, you know, two more security guards from your point of ingress, that means that you also don't have them when the you know, when most of the crowd is already inside, you don't have those people to reposition them to cover the arena bowl. And now you're just short two people, or maybe you don't have them to, I don't know, put them at the barricade near the stage because you've simply cut the budget. That's part, that's an example of the normalization of deviance. Nothing bad happened last time or the time yeah. before. So, ah, the hell with it. Let's just cut it out of the budget and we'll take our shot. So we, as we mentioned before, we asked people to send us anything that, that changed their life. Um, and I have to give a special shout out to Mike Hanley, who sent, sent me a great list, some of which we've mentioned today. Uh, he also mentioned a few on mental health, and I'm just going to, um, I'm not specifically recommending any of them because I haven't read these, but uh, I've certainly seen and heard most of them. Uh, Unbleep your brain. Can I say that? Can I say unfuck your brain on the podcast? I don't know. Um, grit, nonviolent communication. Why won't oh, you apologize? Grit is excellent. And the happiness trap. So uh, those are, and then he also lists book, books on leadership, um, especially in how you uh, ensure a safe environment for your staff. He also included... All right, so so during the pandemic, he made a Google Doc where he basically summarized all the books he read, had a little icon of the cover and, and like his salient points, and he shared it with us. Y'all, this, this this was a great resource, and I may take up may do something very similar uh, going forward because you know how you scribble in the books, and then later you're like, what did I, what page was that on? Um, he's highlighted it in this in this Google Doc cool idea. Um, again, he did during the pandemic, so maybe we just don't have time during more normal operations, but I was, I was super impressed. Um, and then the, another recommendation we got was from um, Al Mercurio, and uh, this is the book When Things Go Wrong by Frank Supovitz. Um, and uh, Frank did a bunch of athletics, sports, events, um, motor speedway, Super Bowl, that kind of thing. Um, and it, it's, he also has a podcast. So there we are teasing that idea again. Um, and I want to thank everybody that, that reached out and, and shared with us your thoughts. Um, please continue to do that because it's super fun hearing from you all. Um, 
So that brings us to the book that I think Steve and I both agree is, is like the number one book. Um, and it's interesting. So Steve divided his list up by topics and he put this one under law. And I was like, law? That's not what I got out of that book at all. So Steve, what's our number one book? So our number one book um, for both Danielle and I, uh, and we did not know it was both of our number ones, um, is written by ESA friend um, and our very first, actually our only uh, keynote speaker, John Baralik, uh, who is an attorney based in Rhode Island. Um, John Baralik's book is Killer Show. Um, Killer Show is, well, the subtitle is The Station Nightclub Fire, America's Deadliest Rock Concert, which unfortunately is exactly right. Um, so the Station Nightclub fire was a fire in an old roadhouse in West Warwick, Rhode Island, uh, February 20th, 2003. Uh, about 450 people entered this building and exactly 100 of them died that night. Um, and perhaps they were the ones who were shown some mercy because many of the survivors suffered horrific burn injuries, um, both burns to the outside of their body and perhaps even more cruel um, lung damage from inhaling smoke and fire um, yep. and superheated air. Um, so- And if, if you go to Rhode Island, there's a, a memorial garden set up on that site. Um, so this, this book, um, I wouldn't say it's technically hard to read. Um, I'm a very fast reader. I could not read through it because, because it's so well written that I'd be like, I need time to process. Also, it's heartbreaking. Oh, yeah, it, it, it's heartbreaking. And but what I would say is it's if I was going to say to anybody working in live events, one book you should read, you should read this one. Because it doesn't matter if you work in a theater or a club or a field or on the road or you're on Broadway, that, that doesn't matter, that your situation isn't identical there. But the decision-making processes of people for their own reasons, deciding that this one little change was okay, that later on was just one more factor why all those people died and all those people were injured. And you know, and it it's basically that that person at the end that pushed the really big domino and all those other decisions came together perfectly, it's the wrong word, um, catastrophically in that one event. And it's I, I couldn't say enough things about why people should read that, but so that you can examine your decisions in, in your, let's say you're the automation guy on a show, what your decisions do to impact the entire event from beginning to end, not just the performers, not just the crew, not just the audience, not just the building. I mean, it's um, incredibly eye-opening. Um, and I didn't get to hear that keynote that year because uh, I wasn't at that one. <laughs> it was one of the few I wasn't at. Um, so hopefully someday I'll, I'll cross paths with him. Yeah, well, so a, a few kind words about attorney John Berelick. Um He is a true gentleman. Um, 
and I, I don't say that about a lot of lawyers. You know, people who know me know that I, I, I have, I have praise when earned. Um, Berelik is—he's a really good person. His heart's in the right place. Um, John Berelik was the head of the, or maybe not the head. He was on the plaintiff's steering committee. So, what happens when there are so many plaintiffs, so many people who are injured or families of the deceased? Um, is there are lots and lots of plaintiffs' lawyers, lots and lots of lawyers suing for compensation for the victims. Baralik was one of the leaders. And so not only did he have to deal with the defense lawyers, but he also had to herd all of the cats at the plaintiff's bar. Um, and there he was were so able many to do people. So many people. Yeah. Um, and in the book, he weaves in stories of fire science. So, mm -hmm. you know, people who are interested in the way fires grow and the chemical composition between, you know, polyethylene foam versus polyurethane foam. You can nerd out on that. Uh, people who and, are interested- think about how you're soundproofing in your club, van, recording studio, theater, trailer, right. whatever. What's your fire curtain like? Yep. Um, do you even really know the composition of the materials that you're working around every day? Um, then, you know, the, the scene will shift just slightly. So if you're interested in pyrotechnics, you can learn about how the gerbs were set up and where they were acquired and how they were carried on the bus across state lines, which is a no-no. Um, and the fact that the guy who actually set them up that started the conflagration that killed a hundred human beings was probably the one who was in some respects, the one with the purest heart, the one who yeah. was really innocent of wrongful intent. He just made some bad choices. Why? Because he had normalized deviance. Yep. Nothing bad happened when he set up his pyrotechnic gerbs in other venues where, you know, any normal person would look and say, well, this is a terrible idea, but nothing bad had ever happened before. And so he set them up in this roadhouse where his luck finally ran out. Um, there are other sections about the victims. Those are the heartbreaking ones. And you can yep. learn how burn injuries work on a human being. You know, in their decision-making process of where, whether to go that night, how close they wanted to be to the stage, you know, their connections with the performers. There's a whole section in there about uh, the fire marshals in the area and their decisions in terms of okaying increased capacities and closing of exits and, and, Different, different decisions about fire suppression systems. I mean, as I said, when you, when you said that you put this book in the law category, that was like that was the last last category in my mind. <laughs> well, the, the reason I I put the killer show um, in the law category, and then I'll explain what killer show means because um, it's a wonderful and terrible double entendre. Mm -hmm. um, the reason I put this book in the law category is there are two chapters near the end of the book that explain how the litigation resolved um, mm -hmm. because, you know, 
when I talk to lay people, they always say, you know, if I do X, can I get sued for that? The answer to that is always yes. Really, the better question is, if I do this and I get sued, what result? And the result, to be honest, is almost always the same. The case will settle. Very few things go to trial. So even in this case, the horrendous station nightclub fire with 100 deceased and many more people with terrible, very, very expensive burn injuries, it settled. The story of how it settled is itself fascinating and a look under the hood of how the law resolves very complicated situations. So that's what I focus on with my law students. I mean, then, I read all that part. That part was fascinating too. <laughs> but it's, it's actually the point is that everyone is going to get different lessons out of this book. And every single lesson in the book is valuable. So yeah. um, so as a great read. tease, you know, if we haven't pitched John Baralik, B-A-R-Y-L-I-C-K, if we haven't pitched John Baralik's killer show enough, um, I'll just refer you to pages 250 and 251, which is a two-page summary of all of the settlement amounts and who paid what. And I urge you to read Killer Show if for no other reason than there are still some people in our beloved event industry who think that they are essentially bulletproof, that no matter what they do, uh, they couldn't possibly be in the chain of causation of people who get sued and have to pay money. Wrong, wrong. You are in the sights of someone every time you go to work. Every time you do anything professionally, there is the possibility of your work being involved in something that goes wrong and causes harm. I don't mean that to be threatening at all. It's just the reality that we live with. And I know that that reality is true because that's what I do for a living. John Baralik at the end of Killer Show shows you. So you don't have to listen to me or Danielle or anybody else. You can see for yourself how many defendants paid enormous amounts of money. And, and I will and I, say- I think other, that's a very useful cautionary tale. It's a, yes. And those other books that we mentioned are books that give you the tools that wouldn't necessarily eliminate you from the, the causation, but would help you perhaps be the person that stops the dominoes. So. That's right. Um, I, I promised to explain the title, Killer Show. Yes. Um, it, it is obviously about people dying. Um, but unfortunately, it's also a line that the lead singer of the band Great White said just before the pyrotechnic gerbs lit the ceiling over the drum riser on fire, causing people to try to flee. Jack Russell, lead singer of Great White, said, it's going to be a killer show tonight. And it was. And that's where the title comes from. So after that, if you guys would like to send us an email, our email is, is podcast at eventsafetyalliance.org. We would love to hear your feedback on this. What books did we miss? What books did we not explain enough? What did I mispronounce? Uh, we would love to hear from you. Um, 
If you have ideas for other things you'd like us to talk about, we do have a few more in the hopper from other people, but if you've got a suggestion, add that to the email as well. You can also find us on social media, um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, reach out to us there. The Event Safety Summit is for sale online, uh, both remote and in-person, so nice hybrid event for you. Uh, sign up if you haven't. We would love to interact with you at that time. And Steve, what else we got? Anything? Um, by the time this podcast comes out, we hopefully will have uh, available new health and safety guidance for in-person events. Um, we've decided that, well, we're tired of saying the same things over and over and over again. The questions are good and valid. We have answers. The science has provided us answers and we're not going to apologize for taking a strong position. So when you listen to this podcast, if you have not by then already seen the Event Safety Alliance Health and Safety Guidance, guidance, I think, um, for in-person events, um, check it out on the ESA website, eventsafetyalliance.org, because it will help you, number one, understand why you should do what you need to do in order to hold in-person events again. And it will also help you fend off objections and claims that are not based on either science or other important factual information. So okay, that should be available by the time this podcast drops. Excellent. All right, everybody. Thank you so much. Steve and I really geeked out on this one. Uh, stay safe out there, everybody. Talk to you soon. Unbleep your brain. Can I say that?